We're back. Welcome to our special film formally mini-series. Friend of the podcast, Sophie Renvari's short films are, as you may or may not have heard, now available for streaming on the Criterion channel. To mark this occasion, we're joining Sophie to record a series of commentary tracks. These feature the writer, director, co-editor, and sometimes star, Sophie herself. Each episode will be synchronized to a specific film available on the Criterion channel. Just have the short film for this commentary ready to go and press play on the movie when you hear a ding. Like that. You don't need to worry about getting the sync too perfect. After the film, we'll have a little bit of extra discussion that isn't bound by the chains of synchronization. Today's commentary is for It's Him. Get your copy of the movie ready to start playing. We're going to start in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. All right, it's him. It's funny to look back at this film, especially in comparison to Still Processing, where I'm trying to recreate home video footage of my brother. Like, I, I, I do think of now looking back at all these films that it really is like a stripping back like more and more and more personal but shows the things that I was willing to reveal. Then I start putting myself in my films and then I start putting like the real core of what I was trying to get at with all the other films in still processing. Horrible admission here. Um, all I can think about when watching any of these scenes is, oh, let's all watch me operate a gimbal poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you had, you had no time at all to learn how to use it. You were just thrown into the mix with this piece of equipment that wasn't even yours. <laughs> it wasn't mine. And I, I think it was under spec for the very large camera we had on it. We've never moved the camera since then. <laughs> That's a good point. We have not done a single dolly, gimbal, handheld, anything. Since. Wow. Everything else has been tripod. That opening is so strange. Like after the uh, home video stuff, just because it's just her walking to the cinema. But it has an interesting rhythm to it. It gets something across about the contrast between her outside world and inside the cinema. I think it was, once again, like very much just an experience that I had grown used to is getting off of the beeline and at Commercial Broadway and walking to the Rio <laughs> where I worked. So it was definitely capturing a, a very real lived day-to-day -day experience for me. Right. It's a very real-timey moment. You worked at this theater for some time. Yes. No, I, this film definitely felt like I got to use every resource that I had, like right before I left Vancouver, you know, getting access to this movie theater and all the different people that came together to help to make the film. Like it felt like a beautiful goodbye message. You know, all the people in the background are like friends that are played extras or were on the crew and leaving a few days after that was very bittersweet. I find interesting that in, in that way, this film almost serves more as a, to me a nostalgia piece for the year it was made than the year it's set where I feel watching this film, I'm like, oh, look at that warm glow of the commercial drive that has been lost in the six years since then. Yeah, it does feel like a different time. I do want to quickly touch upon the project of remastering these. The version that you are ostensibly seeing, the viewer, is not the version of this film or of Time Behind, but I think It's Him has this 
more acutely. Sophie and I, although I think I was kind of advocating for it, <laughs> decided to go back and recolor grade and kind of remaster the film for the new version. And for this, it's one of those movies where I personally feel like my own skills as a colorist were not up to the task in 2016. <laughs> the film was shot in red and nice some nice data in there. So what you're seeing is actually kind of the way I like to see it is hiring myself as a colorist circa 2022 to grade something that I shot in 2016. The film kind of exists out of time, at least the version that you're seeing, because the techniques used to color grade it didn't really exist in 2016. It was really nice to look back at them and, and to make those adjustments. Because again, I think I wouldn't have made those adjustments then. So getting a chance to remaster these with you was really, really interesting. And I hope I get to see them on a calibrated television. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, folks, the sound is identical. <laughs> and I'm not one of these revisionist change it all up alter history people i didn't change any of the credits not at all <laughs> as the character walks home later she teleports from commercial drive to port moody and then back to a different house on commercial drive in fact the basement slash main floor and attic bedroom are different locations. I love the way this film kind of moves in the exact opposite direction of Nine Behind and creates its own weird greatest hits creative geography of a lot of places that have something in common. I think again, it was like all the different places that we had access to. I just wanted to touch quickly on the casting for this film because I think again, it was the only time I've cast real actors to act in, in any of my work. I mean, Noemi is, is a real actor, but uh, she was also a friend first, but this was, Casting Margot to play this lead character, which is essentially a surrogate for myself, was a very interesting experience. And like casting her friend as well and, and seeing all these young actors come for the role that I have never, I have not had that experience since then. And I did in film school cast actors quite a bit, but I really miss working with actors. And looking back at this film, I'm excited in the near future when we will be working with actors again. Having not actually worked with kind of actors in, what, six years, maybe seven by the time we work with them, do you feel like you have retained that muscle memory of working with them at all? Honestly, it was always my favorite part. I don't know why I <laughs> stepped away from it so much. I love working with actors. I think it's something that I actually am quite good at because it's, it's I love having a connection with the people that are performing within like the construct that I develop. It's really like the most collaborative part for me. You know, I ended up being in a lot of my films. Part of that was because they were personal, but also it was, it helps with the limitations. Like I can be in my films, I am, I'm available, <laughs> I'm free. So I think it, yeah, I find it, it's exciting to, to go get back to that, I think. This was the hardest editing collaboration we've had. Tell me again about how the scene was originally structured and what changed. Cause this is, I think the biggest divergence from the script in either of these two narrative films. Well, sure. I mean, there's a kitchen scene that, you know, viewer, you will see a flash away to. Then Sophie and I, we went back and forth and back and forth while we were editing cross country, trying to figure out how to improve it. Like it just wasn't working and we couldn't figure out how to make it work. And finally, I kind of said, like, I don't know if we can make it better. I think this is just as good as it's going to get. I was quite frustrated and I kind of had this feeling of like, well, Sophie's probably done working with me because I could tell I, 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 I shouldn't have been so confident in saying we can't make it better because I think in the back of my head, I knew that there was something I just wasn't getting. And then Sophie finally just sends back this version that does this intercut where 
it removes all the dialogue. It, sh it depicts it as the subjective memory. And it was this moment where like something clicked for me as far as like a wide, like wider truths about editing, but also just how our collaboration works, where every film is an attempt to find the grammar of what the film means. And it's still like uh, of any film where editing collaboration, it's still like, I think like the smartest single thing I've seen someone do is that intercut tapers into the film so well. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that the reason that the edit wasn't working was because the script was bad. <laughs> we were trying to, you know, I had written a whole dialogue scene that I think was just not working. So I don't, I don't know if any edit would have saved that. So it was a way to kind of still have the same meaning in, in the film, but without including the dialogue. But uh, that cut was 100% fired by Manchester by the Sea and Kenneth Onergan's sort of like incredible ability to use flashback in, in, in a way that very few filmmakers, I think, achieve. He's just the king of flashbacks. They're always, yeah, they're so powerful. And Manchester by the Sea does that so, so well. And I think I had just watched that. And this film also was like partially inspired by uh, Margaret, which again, anytime I say inspiration, you'll, you'll probably never pick up on it within the film. But that was having had a big impact on me at the time. So Kenneth Lonergan's fingerprints are all over this secretly for me. I want to also point out this is the first of our woman lit solely by a laptop shots. Well, Noemi was also on a laptop. <laughs> this is a, a trend. <laughs> the lonely girls on laptops. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the filmography. This is the film, I think, where we all had the most growing pains uh, as far as artists. Like this is t still one of the films where I feel like I learned the most. And a lot of that had to do with collaboration because I think that prior to this film, and I think this film is kind of where some of that came to a head for me, was I would often, in hindsight, feel like I would be kind of co-directing movies visually as a DOP versus actually doing my job, which is like facilitating what the director wants. Um, and this is a film where I feel like I see my mistakes in that process in hindsight, where I think during the remastering process, which we can talk about a bit later, you, you said to me that we, we had a kind of debate over the direction to take a scene for color. And you said to me something that rang really true, which was, you know, that that, that scene didn't quite feel like your fingerprints on on the day originally. You felt like you hadn't quite gotten to the point when you could advocate and enunciate for your vision fully at that point. And I don't think that's your fault at all. <laughs> I think that's my fault for not being skillful enough at that point to facilitate that vision. Looking back on this, I, I, I see this film as, as much as a positive experience as I do a kind of um, a challenge that had to happen so I could learn how to be a better collaborator. There's no point in which you've not been a good collaborator, Devin. But I think I just, I was still, and still am to a certain extent, like finding my visual language. And that's why I think there's such a variety in all these films because I'm, I was, you know, I'm trying a lot of different things. And so you maybe knew better what your intentions were visually than I did. So when you were trying to articulate what the scene should look like in color, I couldn't, fight you on like no it should have looked like this because I think I didn't know at the time what my intention was especially with like color and lighting I had ideas around it but I wasn't I wasn't sure what my aesthetic was and I think I'm I'm still kind of honing in on that still processing is probably the closest to that but even still I'm looking forward to you know going into like longer form work really honing in on like a visual aesthetic that feels 
true to like what my vision is. I've been more focused on getting the concepts across and the emotions across than I have about getting a, a very particular aesthetic across. And that works really well with, with working with you because no matter what, if I work with you, it's going to look nice. So even if it's not, even if it's not like exactly what I had or not, not what I had in mind, it's just like, even if there's a disconnect between like what I feel on like an instinctual level, like what my aesthetic might be or might become, there's always going to be like a base level of it just being very beautiful to look at. And like, there's no, there's never any doubt that like, if you're shooting it, that there's going to be a base level of standard that is like going to exceed especially given like the uh, resources that we have, what the expectation is. So it's easy. It made it easy for me to explore a lot of different concepts, I think. Dang, I really like it, Tim, a lot. It's a metaphor for how, you know, someone processes personal pain through cinema. It's not romantic about it or pessimistic about it. It's just got this compassionate kind of ambivalence about it. Thanks, Will. I think I, re I did really want to make a film that had a main character that was not accepting their own grief. And I think that was something that struck me in Margaret was just this lack of acceptance in a character. Because usually in film, characters grow to accept and I wanted her to grow to deny, which to me feels true or true to the experience of grief. You can, you can desire to see a lost loved one anywhere if you desire it enough. What happened to me was I, I was watching a movie and I thought that I saw potentially my brother in the background of a shot in this documentary, which again was literally in transit, which is in the film <laughs> that she is watching. It was an emotional experience for me, but it was also something that I thought was interesting because it's I think it's a common experience that if you want to see someone enough, you can kind of manifest them in reality. You'll start to see everywhere like, oh, doesn't that person look a little bit like them or create that person for yourself because you're... It's like a magical thinking where you start to see signs and, and images that don't actually exist because your body can't accept. For me, that was what I was trying to get across in, what, 15 minutes. I, I like how the film also sketches that, like, I think the two parents are so well developed given the screen time they have, where the, the mom character is immediately based on little ticks of performance. We basically know everything we need to know about her, um, you know, that kind of almost disconnected from the day-to-day -day world kind of in her own head and then you have this kind of exhausted resignation of the father those two elements for me i think really they spoke to me from personal experience yeah i look forward basically i look forward to seeing you work with actors i think it's funny because I, part of the inspiration for having characters be subtle is that that's the kind of filmmaking that i'm drawn toward is like when things are not said they're kind of emoted through like body language or you can just sense like a, a heaviness or an emotion in the room. But also it's definitely with these films, a desire to skirt the limitations of, you know, not having performances that will not necessarily, necessarily like measure up. So you can say a lot more with a little than if you try to have a big dialogue scene that's very emotional. And I think that I always finding ways to not write dialogue because it's, it's the hardest thing to write dialogue and to have actors perform it well is that takes money. To be honest, I think that's shouldn't say it, it always does, but it, to find the right person to play those parts and to have them to perform them well and to, to document them well, like that does take a lot more planning and usually a lot more money. But with the like limited resources that we're working with, but it's a lot more realistic to kind of work within those limitations. Thanks for listening, folks. You can hear the rest of the commentaries on this podcast feed or find them on filmformally.com. 
Paige Smith is our associate producer, and Amanda Avery is this episode's editor. This podcast was recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations. Till next time.